Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 193, The Pieces Fall Into Place. Believe it or not, Pappy started drinking even more after the pilots revolted and he had crashed his plane when trying to take off. And yes, he had been drunk as well. Another repeat was when Chenault remained firm on all the AVG being commissioned into the Army Air Corps by July 1st. This was matched by Pappy, once again bringing up his prior agreement with the Marines about returning to them once the AVG was done. To this, Schnault's only reply was, I have my orders. That was publicly. Privately, Schnault was telling Tex Hill, the future triple ace, that he wished this was a normal military outfit. That way, he could just have Pappy shot. Yet, this was not just the bruised ego of a headstrong pilot. Pappy had the devil plaguing him back home as well. His mother had written to him that the local juvenile court, having received so many complaints about Helen's rearing of their children, that the court had removed the kids from Helen and put them with Pappy's mom. Clearly, this was something Pappy had to get home to straighten out. Besides, even though the war wasn't done here, his part in it was. Chenault would see to that. So, Pappy did the only thing he knew how to— he went on the offensive. On April 12th, Pappy telegraphed the Marine Corps headquarters, letting them know that he was going to resign from the AVG. Also, he asked what would his status be with the Marines at that point. If Chenault heard about this, he would go apoplectic, but Pappy didn't care. To prove this, Pappy did not wait for a response from the Marines. Nine days after the telegraph had been sent out, he resigned. But it seems that the AVG, or Chenault, couldn't even give Boynton this. Word went round, before Pappy left, that Chenault had actually gotten rid of him, that the sullen pilot had been discharged. Honestly, both events probably happened, the resigning and the discharging, but the question remains, which came first? Not that it matters, Pappy was out, and his break from the AVG was complete, he never contacted or attended meetings of the Flying Tigers ever again. Those pilots admitted his skill in the sky, but quickly rejoined with, however, if a person's more disruptive than they are helpful, overall, it's a net negative. And there is something to be said for that. Setting foot on the continental U.S. could have been the beginning of something good for Pappy, but he did not help himself by claiming to all that would hear that he had six kills with the AVG. Remember, officially, the record said he had three and a half kills. So why inflate the numbers? Pappy was trying to get back into the Marines, and he wanted them to think that he was an ace. As for his trip back home, clearly the Japanese controlled much of the waters around Burma. So Pappy would have to head west. First, he flew to Calcutta, which meant going over the hump. Later, Pappy attested to the mountain range's danger to pilots and their planes. As he put it, the risks cannot be exaggerated, in my opinion. The worst part of the flight, and Pappy got to see it firsthand, was when he was looking out his window. An ice chunk 
tore off the right engine propeller and then slammed into the cabin before going behind them. Pappy, being Pappy, was scared, and he was scared because he was frustrated, because there was nothing for him to do. He was not in control, something that always made him feel uneasy. Being away from the AVG did not lessen the anger between Chenault and Pappy. Waiting in Calcutta, Pappy was trying to get aboard an Army Air Corps transport flight to Karachi, Pakistan. Getting nowhere, Pappy finally was forced to write to Chenault, asking for assistance to get aboard a plane. Instead, Chenault wrote back that not only could he not help the pilot, but that he had written to the Army officials in Karachi and recommended that they draft Boeington into the 10th Air Force as only a second lieutenant. Him flying something that's not a fighter, this was injury and insult. It would take the world a while to figure this out. The Japanese would feel it first. But when Pappy got angry, there was more to it than just a flash of heat to hopefully be cooled off with alcohol. No, the man, when he was angry, had something to fight against, and at this moment he wanted to prove to the Marines that they should have taken him back, and he wanted to prove to Chenault that he was capable of great flying and leadership. This, he promised himself, he would show the world. Another objective of his was to make the AVG pilots understand what they were missing in not having him. Now, Pappy had a goal, and that goal gave him resolve. Unable to get a flight back home, Pappy bought a ticket on the New York-bound ocean liner SS Brazil. And against all odds, Pappy found himself being welcomed aboard by the very same missionaries he had traveled to Burma with. And now that he was not pretending to be a religious brother, or simply not in the mood to deliver a sermon— on his way home, Pappy spent his time diving in and out between a large crowd of women. The SS Brazil heaved to in New York on July 13, 1942. From there, he darted to Washington, D.C. to get on with his request to rejoin the Marines. Fortunately, a Colonel Ralph Mitchell, this would not be the last time he was in Pappy's life, figured what the Marines really needed is an experienced combat pilot. To this, Major General Thomas Holcomb, the Marine Commandant, agreed. But all of this still had to be approved by the Navy. The appropriate paperwork was sent off, and until then, the officers told Pappy, go home and get your life straightened out. And that's exactly what Pappy tried to do. Getting back to Seattle, Pappy jumped into the various aspects of his life, like it was a cockpit. He would give speeches and tell of his time in Burma and China. He filled out the paperwork to legally get his children back. The judge agreed, but told all concerned that the kids should stay with Pappy's mom until Boynton himself had a better place for the kids to stay. Then there was the matter of money. To Boynton's thinking, the AVG owed him a few thousand dollars. That dividing up the reward after the raid on the airbase at Chiang Mai on March 24th, that was complete BS. But Pappy guessed, correctly, that he would never see those funds. So, 
he went back to his college days job at the parking garage. The owner was shocked to see a real-life flying tiger, but also one that wanted a job from him. Pappy explained why he was here, that it would be temporary, he just needed the money. The boss readily welcomed his former, newest employee back. Boeington later summed up that waiting period when his personal life was recovering, but his finances and professional prospects were seemingly less so, like this. For two long, dreary months, right in the heart of the war, I parked cars, and with the only high school boys left on the job along with me, and still no word from Washington. Part of the holdup was due to a recommendation from Chenault, or rather, a lack of a recommendation. The air leader admitted in his letter to the Marines that Pappy was a capable flyer, but overall was not worth the effort due to his drinking and subsequent actions. Indeed, the Marine higher-ups were torn on Pappy. On one hand, he had experience and was above-average pilot, something the Marines badly needed. On the other, any pilot allowed to fly had to be satisfied with working within a team, and there, Pappy got fewer votes. Still, the officers saw a fighter in the man, and again, the experience that he had was priceless. On September 3rd, 1942, Boynton got what he wanted. Almost. The Marines would reinstate him, but for now, he was to sit and await instructions. And this, Pappy tried for a while, but when November rolled around, the man could hardly stay in his own skin. In describing his letter to Secretary Frank Knox, Pappy said, in part, I went on about how the United States was in a war and they needed pilots, because outside of the Flying Tigers, every American aviation unit had taken quite a drumming, and so had the British out in that area. Fortunately, this man read my letter. Indeed, because three days later, Pappy was told by letter that he had orders for active duty as a major in the Marine Corps, that he was to report to Air Regulating Squadron 2 in San Diego. He was heading back to Asia. Upon this, Pappy ended a letter to a friend, I'm all fixed up and have only to fight the Japs now, instead of everybody concerned. It's a great feeling for a change. On January 7, 1943, Pappy was aboard the liner Lurline. Escorted by two destroyers, it would take him back to the war. And thus, he was happy. But if Pappy expected the entire Allied front in the Pacific to come to a stop, move out of his way, and put him in the most effective spot to take on the enemy, well, that was more than reality was willing to do. Reality would have to remind him that a pilot first has to learn his theater, his unit's strength and weaknesses, which would allow him to maximize his contribution to the war effort. But that's not what Pappy was expecting, but rather the former, his fantasy. But would the world bend their rules for this aviator? The trip out west a year ago had been on a much nicer boat, but Boynton consoled himself that, once again, he was a Marine and that he was heading out to fight. 
Fourteen days later, Pappy was unloaded onto Nomea, New Caledonia, about 550 miles east of the northern half of Australia. Now attached to Marine Group 11, or MAG-11, based at Espiritu Santo. For someone who wanted to fight, Pappy was in the right place, and at the right time. By the end of 1942, the Allies had checked the Japanese expansion into the Pacific. Now was the time, per Admiral Ernest J. King, the Chief of Naval Operations and Commander-in-Chief of the U.S. Fleet, to go on the offensive and to begin to push back the Japanese towards Tokyo. And doing the heavy lifting in this would be American planes and ships. Locally, as the Japanese had been stopped in the lower Solomon Islands, King wanted to push back north and take whatever airstrip was next in line. That way, the Allies could move forward and then send out their planes and ships to harass and then weaken the next airstrip until it, too, could be overrun and occupied. This was the plan to get to Rabaul, a major enemy base on the northeast end of the island of New Britain, despite the fact that it was ringed with numerous anti-aircraft batteries and 100,000 Japanese soldiers. Still, the journey back to Tokyo had begun. However, the price to check the Japanese had been a high one. By the opening of 1943, Admiral Nimitz, commander U.S. Pacific Fleet, was down to just two carriers, the Enterprise and Saratoga. Also, Nimitz needed more planes, but those would take time to come off the assembly lines back home. His solution, for now, was to borrow from the 14 Marine squadrons in the area. This would be Nimitz's air arm until more planes came from the West Coast. Another limiting factor, for now, until more carriers were in the area, was that the Army bombers would, for the immediate future, be the ones bombing enemy-held positions, strafe and hopefully sink enemy warships, and transports. In all, a situation that would only make someone like Pappy content. Sadly, even here, he let his impatience get in his way. Arriving on fighter strip at Espiritu Santo on February 1st, Pappy would find out that his mission, and that of the base around him, was to supply the fighter squadrons at Guadalcanal, which meant, for now, paperwork and working with a support staff, vital but hardly thrilling for the pilot. Serving as assistant operations officer, Pappy had to count the training flights as they took off, and then count them again when they returned. This was important, but Pappy could almost smell the fighting just to his north. His frustration began to rise. Boynton had come here claiming six kills, though there was a good chance it was really only three and a half. Now he was finding out that other Marine pilots who were in the thick of it had already counted up to either 11 or even 26 kills. And this went on for six weeks until, it seemed... Pappy was about to break. On March 11th, he was made the executive officer of VMF-122 or Marine Fighter Squadron 122. Originally, as it was commissioned in March of 1942, the 122 was called the Candy Strippers, 
But this would change in 1943 with Pappy in charge. But even this was a kick in the teeth as the squadron was still in its training phase. Adding another kick, VMF-122 then transferred to defensive patrols over Guadalcanal and other nearby islands. Enemy pilots were probably not going to be encountered. On April 19th, Pappy was made squadron commander, but instead of happiness, the promotion only brought more frustration. The commander of what? Routine patrols, alerts, but no enemy spotted. It was enough to make a man drink. Certainly a man like Boeington. Yet, perhaps, Pappy had learned something from his time in Burma and China. Now being squadron commander, he did not so much duck the paperwork, but officially delegated it to his second-in-command. Another man was in charge of the assignments. This gave Pappy more time to drink, and drink he did. But, it has to be said, he never missed a mission. And finally, things looked to be about to break Pappy's way, in that there was more combat, and it was close by. Admiral Nimitz expected to land troops on New Georgia, along the western half of the islands of the Solomons, which meant that air and the water around it had to be softened up with air attacks. Yet, as if putting one more stumbling block in our hero's way to increase anxiety, if nothing else, just before he could get involved in the latest action, Pappy drunkenly ran headlong into Lieutenant Colonel Joseph Smoak, the operations officer of MAG-11. These two had clashed back in Pensacola, Florida, and Smoak had cause to warn Pappy about his drinking back then. Obviously, this advice had not been heeded. Thus, Smoak relieved Pappy of command of VMF-122. Panicking, thinking of missing out again on air combat, Pappy broke the rules and went over Smoak's head by writing to Brigadier General James Moore, Chief of Staff of the 1st Marine Aircraft Wing. Moore, not emotionally involved in this fight, nor having seen firsthand what Pappy was like when he was drunk, reinstated Boeington as every experienced pilot was needed on deck. With this drama over, Pappy went in for a little R&R in Sydney, Australia, and a fellow pilot went along to keep him out of trouble. For him, it was a lot less of a vacation. Pappy would do his usual drinking and then challenge anyone to a wrestling match. More than a few times did the police have to be asked to forgive and forget about this belligerent American aviator. Either way, he was back and ready for action, until he wasn't. About to mix it up again with the Japanese fighter pilots, Pappy then broke his ankle in the latest bar fight. As Boeington put it so perfectly himself, if fate didn't get in my way, then I got in hers. With a cast from his ankle to his knee, Pappy began to worry about his future, really worry. Clearly, this break would take a while to heal, and he had to admit to himself that he wasn't getting any younger. Between that and his deserved reputation as a troublemaker, Pappy figured out that his last chance to actually fight in this war would be 
if he was in charge of his own squadron. That way, if he couldn't straighten himself out, and he promised again that he would try, then there would be no squadron commander to ground him. But first, the pain. Pappy's convalescence would require a trip to New Zealand, but worse than that, Smoak had suspended his flight status. Thus, Pappy would not be paid as a pilot while he was away. And then the hammer came down on Boeington's heart and ego. While he was still in New Zealand, VMF-122 went up against a massive enemy flight group and downed 48 Japanese planes of all kinds over New Georgia. Pappy immediately internalized this supposed good news for the Allies by saying, I guess they were waiting for me to leave. When Boynton was healed enough, he was flown back to the Solomons. This was early August. But again, fate stepped in the way. Pappy was not to rejoin VMF-122. Instead, he would now be in charge of VMF-112. Finally, his own command. And yet, VMF-112 was a squadron in name only. There were no pilots attached to it. On the plus side, fate or fortune which had frowned on Boeington for lo these many years, now decided to smile on him. His return from hospital roughly coincided with the arrival of the bent-wing Chance Vaunt F4UY Corsair. This widow-maker, as the Corsair was quickly dubbed, was powered by a 2,000-horsepower Pratt & Whitney radial engine. The Corsair was an example of someone, or someones, getting it right. It was sleek like the deadly Japanese Zero fighter, but had more armor around for the pilot, unlike the Zero. Further, the Corsair could fly just over 400 miles an hour at sea level, making it faster than the enemy fighter. It could climb 3,000 feet per minute, which kept it up with the nimble Zero. But the American fighter had the war-changing advantage of having twice the range. There was also these self-sealing gas tanks that would keep many Americans alive. When one lucky shot got near the tank, now it would not end badly. As for the pilot taking the fight to the enemy, with the plane's six 50mm guns in the wings, this meant that the Corsair had a harder punch than the Zero. Amazingly, this gift from the god of war, Mars, almost did not end up with the marine aviators. It was the Navy that was to receive the Corsair, but during testing, its massive nose was much too much in the way for the Navy pilots trying to take off or land on a carrier. Thus, it was shunted to the Marines, who were only too happy to receive it after a few test flights. The Corsair started to arrive in the Solomons in February 1943, when Pappy was laid up with a bad ankle. The plane did well the first few times out, and soon all the Marine fighter squadrons in the area started receiving them. Soon after, Japanese pilots started reporting back to Tokyo that the new American plane on the scene was making life harder for the formerly dominant pilots. Some of the after-action reports were given to Dr. Jiro Horikoshu, the engineer of the Mitsubishi A6M Zero fighter. His conclusion? 
the F4U Corsair proved to be a great nuisance to our fighters and that the Corsair clearly surpassed the Zero in performance. And the still limping Pappy was equally impressed upon his return. After giving the Corsair a look over, Boeington wrote, The Corsair was a sweet flying baby if I ever flew one. No longer would we have to fight the Nips fight, for we could make our own rules. Here was a ship that could climb with a zero, only with a more shallow angle of climb, and one that had considerably more speed. The powers that be agreed as the Corsair was quickly incorporated into strafing attacks, photo reconnaissance, and harassing enemy ships. When not doing all this, the Corsair were escorting bombers or living the pilot's dream, namely mixing it up with enemy fighters. But one of the biggest game changers was the Corsair's longer range. Thus, the island hopping could be extended to longer hops, as the Corsair could reach Bougainville and the Northern Solomons. Now that the bombers could be escorted, the bombers would soon visit there. Yet now that the bomber could be flown at enemy airfields, even as far away as Rabaul, new tactics were needed. Chenault's basic evade and attack strategy was fine for that time. The Corsairs needed to make sure that the bombers got through, so cocoons of fighters were formed around the bomber formations. As the plan was fleshed out, the bombers would fly about 20,000 feet, with P-38s flying above them and P-40s flying below them. As for the Corsairs, as the Japanese were getting wise to them, it was decided to try to hide the newer planes in between the bombers and their escorts above them. Hopefully, they would be difficult to spot until it was too late. With the tables so turned on them, the Japanese fighters would, instead of attacking these formations, fly behind them and pick off stragglers. This allowed the pilots to report back home that they were still engaging the Americans, but overall, they were not really denting the Allied bombing attacks. A recipe for disaster. So, the pieces began to fall into place. The Corsair had arrived in the Pacific, Pappy was a squadron commander, but with no pilots, and lastly, Admiral William Halsey was currently looking for Marine squadrons to help him and his push up the Solomon Islands, ever closer to Rabaul, to choke off the enemy's supplies for the entire area. In 